Jerome Charon is an award-winning American author who's published nearly 50 books. Throughout his career, he's written novels, memoirs, graphic novels, short stories, plays, and nonfiction works. Born and raised in the Bronx, Jerome hasn't forgotten his roots. The Bronx consistently seeps into his writing. His latest work is a collection of 13 short stories called Bitter Bronx. Hi, I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Jerome Charon is our guest on today's show. Jerome, thanks for joining us. Thank you, George. Your latest book is called Bitter Bronx, 13 Stories, 13 different stories right. that really take us to the South Bronx mostly. Uh, well, the South Bronx, uh, you know, when it was of a different era because the Grand Concourse at that point was really not considered part of the South Bronx. That was the elite area of the Bronx when I grew up. So it's changed radically. Yeah, tell us about your upbringing in the Bronx. Well, I moved from the East Bronx to the West Bronx, which was one block east of the Grand Concourse. And to me, the Concourse was a kind of mecca of uh, middle-class life. I mean, it had a kind of uniformity. The streets were clean. There were... Bronx High School of Science was a little bit further up. It had movie theaters. It had, quote, a kind of culture that we didn't have in the East Bronx. I mean, these these were the residences of doctors and lawyers and brokers. So it was a, a very uh, sort of um, prized, you know, remembrance uh, as, as a child. You spent a lot of time watching movies as a kid, didn't you? Yes, I loved the movies. That was basically a form of education. You you learned how people kissed. You learned how people sat at the table and ate. You learned... Uh, you learned how adults behaved. Of course, the the kiss stood for everything. You know, when two people kissed, that was the way they made love. So, uh, and of course, at that point, you never saw toilets in a film. So it was a very strange antiseptic world. You know, you grew up in a household without any books, which I find right. very very surprising for a writer. Yeah, I did. You know, it, it it is very, very strange. Uh, there, there was uh, the first volume of an encyclopedia that went all the way through A, so I knew everything about A from Aardvark all the way to <laughs> to the end. But um, my parents were not readers. Uh, my brother was a reader, so he did bring in books, but there were no books. And I remember the my most prized possession in all my life uh, was not an apartment, was not this was not Lenore. It was a bookcase. Your wife, yes, Lenore. Yes, my wife. Uh-huh. It, was, it was my first bookcase because uh, coming from a culture where there were no books, uh, having when I went to college and was reading all these modern library classics and had no place to put them, so when I got my first bookcase, that was I had everything I really needed. And then, of course, that wasn't enough. So we had a bookcase on top of that bookcase. But uh, the Modern Library Classics was a, was a great way to, to read because they were inexpensive, hard-covered books that told you everything. I, I still belong to a book culture, and I still believe that those people who don't read are really the underprivileged. Mm-hmm. They don't know what they're missing, and they'll never know what they're missing. They'll never understand, you know. 
You did read comic books, though, while you were growing up. I did read comic books. Comic books were, was a, comics were a wonderful influence, particularly the movement from panel to panel, because you could do so much. And you know, I do uh, comic books now. I, I, I do. I work basically with French artists, but they're they're very successful. They're novels told in the form of comics, but uh, I learned how to read through comics. I also, as a novelist, it was very helpful because it gave you a wonderful sweep, you know, from sentence to sentence. You could go wherever you wanted to go in a comic book. You've said that you're frightened of everything except for writing. Yes, I I'm, was frightened about getting up here. I was frightened about, you know, going to the airport, uh, frightened about going anywhere. But if you told me, well, I need a novel tomorrow of 300 pages, I wouldn't be able to do it, but I wouldn't be frightened to start doing it. Where do you think that fear comes from? Why are you scared of so much? Well, we'd have to go into psychoanalysis. (laughs) I had had a father who was uh, uh, really... um, disturbed in many ways. He was left in Europe by his parents. They gave him a violin, so I have a picture of him with his little fiddle. And he came much later than they did, and he never sort of uh, sort of adjusted to American culture. And uh, he remained, I remember as a boy of eight or nine, having to take him to the, to the doctor because he was always frightened of having ulcers, and of course he never had them, you know. You've also said that every time you write a book, it's like dying and being reborn. So how many times have you died and come back to life now? Well, um, I don't know. Maybe maybe too many or too few because, you know, when you enter the universe of a book, it's very painful because it's a new world. I mean, in, in other words, you're, you're, from my point of view, the craft is, is, is constantly flowing. You, you, you're, you're an apprentice all your life, you know, and you're relearning. So each time you, you write a book, you're going into a new universe and you, you're discovering a new language. And so when, when you're in the world, you, you know, you begin to dream. But until you get into the world, I mean, you can't dream and it's constant chaos and constant fear and then suddenly you're you're in it and then you have to leave it and go on to to something else but while you're in the rhythm of a book i mean uh, nothing else hurts you it doesn't really matter you've written what more than 30 books now i've right? written about 50 50 yeah but uh they're all i mean i've done a series of crime novels but the others are very 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 different and this was uh the first book of short stories I'd done in, in many years, and I had to relearn the craft. I mean, it's not easy to write a short story. People think, well, you just put 10 pages together and you have a short story, but you're taking a novel and compressing the language, so the amount of pressure that's in each sentence is is, is explosive. And so, um, But I was happy to relearn the craft. I know that you've said that you struggle with writing the first line to a novel. Right, yeah. Is it the same for a short story, that first line? It's always, you know, how you get into the world and you keep changing that and, 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 and it's never right. And I remember even in one of the stories, uh, um, there was something that, that, that disturbed me and I was looking for a word and I, and I, and I couldn't uh, find it. In the last story, I mean, we, I talk about a crime spree 
and I didn't like the word spree, a crime, crime spree didn't, wasn't right, and then I just realized I'll change it to a crime fest. But that took me months. And the months. story was already published, and so when it appeared in this form, I, I, I was able to change it. But crime spree didn't, it was too glib. Do you remember just, the moment that word fest hit you? No, I don't remember the moment, but I, I was thinking of festival, and then fest was right, you know. So that's what your life, you know, in other words, it makes you crazy because you're constantly in the world of language, and therefore you're, you're, when you react to other people, uh, they don't seem real to you in a way because you're still living in the in the wordscape that, that you've just inhabited. Over how long of a period of time did you write these 13 stories? Uh, I think uh, it was over... A, many of them were written over the last several years when I really... Th- because it was my French editor who said, why don't you do a, a book of stories about New York? And so she gave me that idea. And uh, I had written two or three before, and then so mainly they were written between 1910 and 1914. I mean, uh, excuse me. I was two, going to say, I didn't uh, think yeah, you were that old. It's a long time ago, <laughs> yeah. You see, I'm already back in an early part. No, 20, between 2010. I, I'm really not in the 21st century. I mean, so I'm not a millennial. You know, I'll never be a millennial. But over the last, uh, between 2010 and, and 2014. Yeah. All of the characters really are living on the margins yes. here, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, we all live on the margins, either economic or psychological, but I think uh, that's the, the the space I feel comfortable in. And also the sort of the whiplash between the present and the past, I mean, is very important to me, how things just come back to you. Uh, and uh, and in, even in the first story... Uh, Lorelei. Yeah, where Lorelei, where, where the, the hero just comes to the Grand Concourse, sees this sort of uh, building and goes in and rents an apartment and discovers that the girl he'd been in love with many years ago is still living there. That's the, He's startled out of his wits, but of course he gets the hell out of there as fast as he can because she hasn't changed. Yeah, this middle-aged grifter who returns right. after basically swindling widows all right. over the country, right? He swindles them, but in a very gentle way. I mean, he says he can't swindle anyone unless he's really in love with them, and he always returns a certain amount of money. So in, in other words, he has a, a silken glove. I mean, he gets away with it, you know. In a lot of these stories, people have either moved away from the Bronx and are pulled back to the Bronx, right. or they're living in Manhattan and are pulled into the Bronx. Do you think that the Bronx has this kind of magnetic energy that just pulls people back if they've left or just pulls them here for some other reason? Well, it it did for me. I mean, it's hard to discuss, uh, you know, how other people would behave because uh, many people, when they escape the Bronx, they want to escape it as far as they can. But I, I and, and I felt the same way. It was only until I think I was about 50 years old and the BBC was doing a documentary on the South Bronx. You know, this was during, you know, when everything was burning. They probably figured it was like the London Blitz. So they asked myself and another writer to go up there. And I realized that uh, 
the Bronx gave me something. You know, it gave me that sense of imagination because there was nothing else in my head. I had to occupy it with something. So I feel, uh, you know, I could move back and live here one block away and not feel uh, uncomfortable at all. I mean, there's a kind of rhythm that, and, and a kind of love that I have for for the place that, that I'm glad has come back because for a long time it wasn't there. I blamed, you know, you blame your own background, you blame your own poverty, you blame. And really, I mean, that thing that weakens you also strengthens you. It's very strange, but it's true. You've said that the only way you were able to survive in the Bronx was because of your brother. How come? Yes, my I, when we, we moved away from the Concourse neighborhood, we were one block east of the Concourse, to the East Bronx, I didn't realize it was the roughest area in New York City, and I had at least 10 fights uh, each morning going to school, and many of them were with girls rather than with boys. They were even tougher than the boys. But my brother was three years older. He was a weightlifter, and he was utterly fearless, so people knew that if they really got on my case and bothered me too much, they'd have to fight with him. And they didn't want to. They were really wanted to avoid fighting my brother because he would give it to you and without mercy. You once threw someone off a roof in the Bronx? Yes, that's a very sad story, but luckily um, the person survived because uh, it was a question of... Uh, of either my getting out of there alive or, you know, or not. So um, the person fell off the roof, but there were these clotheslines, so they sort of acted almost like a kind of trapeze and a trampoline, and, and he wasn't killed, luckily. Or I, I mean, I, I watched him sail down, and I, I was both fascinated and frightened, and he just he got up. He didn't even fall. He just fell into the clotheslines and just swayed down as if it were a kind of sheet <laughs> and walked away. So you witnessed a lot of violence. You were involved in terrible violence. Terrible violence, terrible violence in, in, in every way. And, and it's basically the violence of poverty, of people who are desperate and have no way to get out of the situation that they're in. And I, I, I saw the sadness... I could see the sadness in my brother's eyes. I mean, it's still there. I mean, it's it's very powerful and irresistible. And I'm drawn to it myself. You know. And that seeped into these stories, no question about that. Oh, it certainly did. But on the other hand, there is still a kind of love. In, in spite of the violence and the sadness, there is a, a deep affection for the place. And I think one feels it... Uh, in the narratives. This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Bolarkey. Our guest today is award-winning author and Bronx native Jerome Charon. Jerome is the author of nearly 50 books. His latest work is Bitter Bronx, 13 Stories. You mentioned earlier that some of the fights that you got involved with were with girls. There are a lot of strong women featured in this book, including Marla. I like strong women. You know, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> um, yes, Marla is one of my favorite characters, and maybe in a different world I would do a novel about her. She's I mean, a corporate I, lawyer. She's a corporate lawyer, but, but she has a sister who uh, sort of comes out of her past, a younger sister who was sort of put into a home because she was violent. It's always a question of violence. 
And um, she goes about trying to recuperate her sister and bring her back into her life, you know. But the, you know, the I, I was speaking once to, to the actor John Malkovich, and I told him uh, about my brother and how violent he was. And then he looked at me and he said, you know, there's also a gentleness in violence. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd never seen that, but I think he was right. You know? And we see that in Marla's sister, no question. Yes. There's a gentleness in her as well. Yeah. Absolutely. And a rage. You know, there's a terrible, terrible rage. Right. We won't tell how one of those stories ends, but certainly there was a rage in there, wasn't there? Yes, absolutely. Now, another strong character, a strong female, was the character in The Cat Lady's Kiss. Right. Yeah. Who thought she turned into a cat when she kissed a man. Yes, because she saw this wonderful film uh, when she was a child about this woman, uh, Simone Simone. She was a French actress who came here during the war plays a woman who fears that if she kisses a man, I mean, she will destroy him. And so um, the heroine of the story uh, sees that film in prison and identifies with her. And and I, I, I like that story. That's one of my favorite stories because she does fall in love and, and discovers later on that the man she married is a woman and mm-hmm. she's even happier. But so... Uh, I love the idea of taking an Albanian a real godfather, place. Yeah, if you an will. Albanian godfather who's really a woman, because you know, I, 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 I did look up the history, and many of the Albanian chiefs in the medieval period were women; they were not men. So, uh, I like the idea of taking a real place and then inventing something around that real place. You know, I don't like pure fantasy, and I don't like pure science fiction, but I like. A mixture of both. You spend some time right across the street from where we are today in one of your stories, Arthur Avenue in the Bronx. Right, yeah. It, it, it's very close, isn't it, Arthur? Yeah, yeah, you can walk. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I loved Arthur Avenue, and uh, I loved uh, the Italian neighborhood. Uh, and I, I, as a boy, I would walk there and, and eat and in many of the restaurants, and I, they would give me food. You know, I would just walk in. They'd see this kid. They were very—I don't know—people were incredibly friendly. I mean, that—that—that's something I think we've lost. I mean, uh, maybe we haven't lost it. But when I was a kid, New Yorkers were incredibly—they were fast, loud, furious, and friendly. You can't forget that. And I wonder if that's still there. You know, you didn't worry about leaving. You could leave your car door open. You could you could do anything. People would not think of stealing from you. You wonder today if you still can, or is it just the fear that you shouldn't, that people don't, right? I think the fear, the fear is inbred. Whether you know, you know, that's always difficult to say. But I, I just have very fond memories of that place. And remember, these were Italians. I was not an Italian kid, and they knew that. And they said, ah, come on, eat with us, you know. And and I always go back to this restaurant because, first of all, there's no menu. Dominic's you're talking about. Yeah, Yeah. but I don't think it was called Dominic's then because Dominic's uh, came a little bit later, but it was a kind of restaurant. I don't think Dominic's opened until the 50s, but it had these communal tables, and I loved that. I love the idea that wherever you sit down and eat, you're part of a communal feast. It was almost a 
religious. You and your wife should go for lunch when we wrap up. Walk on over. Well, we might. She's a little bit busy, but uh, maybe we will go. Would you like to? Okay. There you go. One of your characters is a teen catalog model who works for a guy described as Count Dracula. And we meet Count Dracula in another story as well. Were you at all a male model who worked for catalog? I was. I was for a little. I I mean, you know, it's very, very difficult (laughs) to talk about oneself and about one's looks. But uh, people always said that I should be a model, you know, that I could have been a model. You know, I never saw myself in that way. So I I did. I I did it for a much shorter period of time. And, of course, it was a lot more sordid than I talk about, but uh, it was a way of earning money, you know, so. That was an interesting life that you present in this book for this teen. Well, I was a very rich kid, (laughs) (laughs) but uh, it was not a life that one would want to uh, sustain, I don't think. The characters in this book, all 13 stories, are either misfits in some way or live with some level of dysfunction. But yet one common theme, I think, is that they're all in need of love. They're all in need of feeling love, being loved, or loving someone else. Oh, absolutely. I think that's the most basic, uh, you know, function. uh, uh, You know, my cat needs, our cat needs love. And and the thing is that... uh, when we were away in Paris for three weeks, it was a nightmare because we were worried that the cat wouldn't be loved. So, I mean, the the, the notion of love is what binds us and, and tears us apart. Its absence is utterly destructive, and, and, it, and its presence is what really soothes us. I don't think there's anything else but but love in my own feelings. It's got nothing to do with money. It's got nothing to do with success. It's only got to do with, with love. You mentioned Paris. You not only have visited Paris, you also have lived in Paris. I, I've lived for for a long time, and Lenore and I, for the last two years, were, were often going back and forth. I was a teacher at the American University, but I those were not necessarily good years because I, I, you know, when you're outside the culture of your language, you you lose a music, and uh, it was very sad to lose that music. So it affected your writing? It affected my writing for a long period of time, and also, strangely enough, I didn't even realize that I was that stupid. I would be home, uh, let's say, sometimes I stayed there 11 months at first and was home here for a month, and didn't realize the difference, you know, just didn't understand it. You know, we're, we're, we're not really very self-aware. <laughs> the urban planner Robert Moses isn't a character, specifically a character yeah. in your stories, but yet he comes up in your stories here because he built a highway, the Cross Bronx Expressway, that tore through Bronx neighborhoods. I guess you lived to see that impact. I did live to see that. And actually, he does appear in one of the stories uh, just for one moment. But it's a story called The Major Leaguer where the little boy sees Moses, you know, with his hard hat. But, uh, I mean, he's a very ambiguous figure because when he was uh, the park parks commissioner, he did build many, many playgrounds in the city, but when he be- became the head of the Port Authority, I mean, the bridge and tunnel 
authority. I mean, he caused so much destruction to so many neighborhoods. You know, he was going to sort of build a highway right through Greenwich Village. And it's interesting who brought him down. I mean, he was so powerful. He took on the president. He took on President Roosevelt. And when he got into a fight with her, he knew how much Eleanor loved the aquarium. And he took the aquarium from Lower Manhattan and shuffled it all the way out to Queens where it died a, a very sad death. But what happened was he wanted to to take a playground on uh, 67, West 67th Street right off Central Park and and tear it down and get rid of it. And all the nannies of the very wealthy women were saying, you know, Mrs. So-and-so, I mean, we're not going to have a playground. Now, West 67th Street is a place where many corporate lawyers live. They got in touch with the governor, and I think within three months, uh, Moses was out on his ass. So you see, you can't mess with the wrong people. How different do you think the Bronx would be today if that expressway were never built? I think it would be very, very different. I mean, I think the Bronx is coming back, I mean, because some of the real estate is very, very valuable. But we wouldn't have had this concussion. We wouldn't have had this hemorrhage, this bleeding of of one half the borough. Because remember, it's not simply the highway. It's everything around the highway that, that is impaired. So... I mean, if you go west of the highway and the further west you get into, let's say you come to Fordham and Arthur Avenue, there there probably isn't that much difference. But when you go east of, 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 of the highway, I mean, it's complete blight. As a matter of fact, if we didn't have the Yankee Stadium, I don't think we'd have anything in the East Bronx. That's basically what saved it. But I think those neighborhoods are, are coming back. I mean, it's strange how resilient people are. I mean, in spite of all the destruction, in spite of all the sadness and the burning of the buildings, I think the Bronx is coming back. This is not the first time you've written about the Bronx. You've been inspired by the Bronx. You've actually written two memoirs about your life. Three. Three memoirs. Yeah, and I've also written a book on New York City called Metropolis, where I devote a chapter to Robert Moses, because he's my villain. (laughs) (laughs) You've also written books about Abraham Lincoln, right. Emily, Dickinson, Emily Dickinson, Joe DiMaggio. Right. You've even written about the history of ping pong. Absolutely. I'm a, still a ping pong player, and I still, though I don't play it as well as I used to, I mean, I, I have a tremendous pleasure, you know, being out on the court, you know. What inspires you to write about any particular topic at any particular point in time? That's uh, just not an easy question. The thing is that I was in France. Let's look at the ping pong book. And uh, at the time I was in France, the world champion was French. So there was a culture of table tennis, or le ping, as they would say, in France. So I was able to meet a lot of people. I was able to get a lot of old photographs uh, to discover tremendous sense of history, so it allowed me to go into the culture and write about it. I think very often it's a question of circumstance. I mean, DiMaggio was someone I grew up with. I could have also written about Willie Mays, but DiMaggio, I, I saw, unlike any other ball play, was, was really an artist. I mean, he was, you know, it's the portrait of the artist as a baseball player. He was He was different from I love LeBron James, and I think he's great, but he's a great player, but he's not the artist that that DiMaggio was. DiMaggio was about pure form. 
if you ever saw him play, I mean, he never made a false gesture out on the field. I mean, he was always sort of the first to go in, you know, and the last to come out. So the last image you saw when, you know, the team was out to go, go, going back to the field was Joe DiMaggio sort of loping out to center field. And when he caught a ball, the way he ran, it was so lyrical. It was musical. I mean, there was just nothing like it. And, I don't, you know, there, there may be other players like him. I mean, you always think that your generation, you know, was the best. But I've never seen anyone as musical. He was Fred Astaire out on... Mm-hmm. On the, uh, you know, on on the field, an extraordinary man. Very sad because his relationship with Marilyn Monroe was was a disaster of his life. Mm-hmm. Which book has been your most successful? Probably the the novel on on Lincoln, because you know because of Lincoln, <laughs> right? But um, it, you know, it, to me, it's always uh, you know a struggle with language, and I think if people aren't interested in language, it's probably more difficult for them to get into the into the text because I wouldn't know. You know, it's difficult for me. You know, because when I'm writing, I'm basically inside my own head. Well, this latest book is Bitter Bronx, 13 Stories. Jerome, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for inviting me, George. Jerome Charon is an award-winning American author who hails from the Bronx. His latest work is Bitter Bronx, 13 Stories. It's out now from Live Right Publishing Corporation. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producers Taylor Nolk and Claire Drake. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.